This is Jason Albert, and you are listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. In this episode, we speak with two people. One is John Munger, who is the head of the Loppet Foundation based in Minneapolis, and he'll be helping head up the Minneapolis World Cup on March 17th. We also speak with Garrett Cuzzy, who has written several interviews for Faster Skier with organizers for World Cups in Seyfeld and Dresden. He also grew up in Minneapolis and has skied in several World Cups himself. We thought you'd enjoy his perspective and questions. Here's just a note. This episode is brought to you by Visit Sun Valley and the Boulder Mountain Tour. Known as Nordic Town USA, Sun Valley remains an iconic cross-country ski destination with a Nordic festival kicking off with town sprints and a party on January 29th. You'll find great family events continuing through to the Boulder Mountain Tour on Saturday, February 1st, and concluding on Sunday with the BMT Block Party and Awards Bash. Okay, back to the episode. We have two people on the phone here. We are, I'm going to have John. Why don't you introduce yourself? You are based in Minneapolis. Who are you and what do you do? Uh, John Munger. I am the executive director of the Lopez Foundation. Okay. And we also have Garrett, who is based in Innsbruck, Austria, and at least nine hours ahead of me. Garrett, introduce yourself, please. And what do you do? Yeah, this is Garrett Cuzzy here. Um, it's about seven o'clock at, at night in Innsbruck, and um, I run a cross-country ski tourism company or a cross-country ski tour company called Lumi Experiences. We bring um, cross-country skiers from the U.S. to different events and on ski trips in Europe. Um, but I also grew up in Minneapolis and uh, have spent a lot of time skiing on the Worth Park trails, um, and also skied. Uh, with the U.S. ski team, the CXC team, and uh, competed in the uh, Olympic Games in 2010. Okay. So one of the things uh, I want to talk about, obviously, it's a big deal that Minneapolis uh, is going to be hosting a World Cup in March of this year. And it's also, to me, a very interesting story about landscape and landscape change and developing infrastructure um, in a major metropolitan area that over the long run, you know, helps people find a little bit of solace, uh, in the buzz of a city. And that being a place where you can in Worth Park, where you can run, you can ski, uh, and Garrett, you can talk about this, but you can now mountain bike, which I think you were probably about to be thrown in jail back when you were a kid. Cause mountain bike wasn't allowed. Um, but I want you to talk a little bit about both of you um, and Garrett being a native, talk a little bit about what Worth Park was to you back when you were a child. Yeah. So when I, I was born in 1982 and grew up in Minneapolis and spent a lot of time on in a lot of the different parks in and around the city. Um, and Worth Park was, was uh, this park, huge park right around the corner from our house. And, uh, you could, you know, basically do everything there in the winter, um, ice skate, tube, um, go sledding, cross-country skiing. Um, and then in the summertime, um, there were a lot of different activities, but I felt like it was more, a little bit more of a golf course and a place that, you know, maybe as like a 12-year-old kid, you weren't really supposed to be uh, playing in that park on your own, I guess. And when you were skiing there as a kid, what did that 
look like? I mean, was there, you know, was it a real grooming or was it essentially, you know, paths that you would just go out and, you know, classic ski on? You know, from, from what I remember, it, it did have grooming occasionally. It was, you know, definitely like a snowmobile dragging a, a bed frame behind it, basically um, grooming it, it seemed like. And I remember there being like start shacks out in the woods. And so there was a certain sense of a time when Worth Park really maybe had some ski races and whatever. But when I was growing up, um, I don't really remember there being much in terms of you know, training facilities or, or really grooming. And, and usually people from, from Minneapolis would drive out to parks in the suburbs, um, like Baker park, um, park parks in the, uh, Hennepin park district that would, that would have grooming. So, so John, tell us a little bit about like what you do with the Loppet foundation. And in particular, I know you folks built a new headquarters that maybe was christened about a year and a half ago. Can you talk about what you do as an entity and how it specifically relates to Nordic skiing or cross-country skiing and how the park has changed just in terms of infrastructure when, you know, as Garrett is talking about, you know, grooming with a bed frame behind some sort of machinery to, you know, arguably a world-class facility where there's snowmaking, homologated courses and infrastructure to host a World Cup. Yeah, it, it's definitely been a, a big, I mean, monumental change. Um, yeah, just to kind of add on to, to Garrett, so I'm, I'm a fair amount older than Garrett, and I grew up in Minneapolis as well, and, and my high school te- ski team, um, we skied here when I was in high school and on the bed frame grooming. Um, it was interesting, during the time I was in high school in the 80s, I think Wirtz was at the tail end of being kind of a place people would actually go. And then by my senior year, we were going out to the suburbs, like, like Garrett was saying. Um, but fast forward to the early 2000s, and really there wasn't much going on in this park at the time. Um, kind of dilapidated, and people thought of it as kind of a dangerous place, actually. There had been some kind of uh, police-type incidents that, gave it a bad reputation and there wasn't much use of the park because of that. And that made it feel dangerous. And you kind of just had this you know, kind of negative cycle of use when we started up. So um, there were probably eight kilometers of trails that they groomed uh, occasionally, but it was n- not a, not a real uplifting place at the time. Um, you asked what, what we do. So the, the foundation uh, is, uh, or our mission is to get people outdoors and active throughout the year in the Minneapolis area um, with a particular emphasis on North Minneapolis, which is kind of an adjacent um, neighborhood here that's a little bit more of an underserved population. Um, but we really grew out of, of you know, cross-country skiing and, and uh, certainly our, our roots were there. Um, so, you know, there's a lot happened in between. We started up around 2002 or three. And when you fast forward to today, now there's 30 kilometers of trails that are groomed in the park with six and a half kilometers with snowmaking. And like you said, there's, you know, homologated uh, courses here for doing national and international events. And, um, and now there's, you know, about 12 miles of mountain bike trails. There was none when we started. Um, we maintain about five miles of trails that you can use for, 
mountain bike events and races. And um, so there's just been a real significant shift in infrastructure. And then the building, of course, has been kind of the capstone on that. So one thing that, you know, because I think there are a lot of communities that would like to emulate something like this. Can you speak to what your operating budget may have been, you know, at the outset and what it currently is? Are you at liberty to (laughs) talk about that? Yeah, sure, of course. Um, So, you know, when we started, um, it, it was basically a shoestring. I mean, when we started, it was, hey, let's see if we can get the trails improved and maybe not have off-camber grooming. Um, that was about the extent of our ambitions. Um, we fairly quickly turned to the idea of doing an event, which became the city of Lakes Lopez. And uh, the, one of the first projects we did was to get a sponsor. Um, we went to a local hospital and pitched them and uh, eventually they, uh, gave us a, I think it was a $25,000 sponsorship. And that was the extent of our budget and all of our resources. Um, but, um, that winter was a terrible winter. It didn't snow at all until two days before the event, uh, finally got some snow and we ended up with about 800 people, um, who signed up at the last minute. And we went into the next year with a little bit of a bank account. So we had a budget of probably 30,000 a year at the time, um, fast forwarding to today, our operating budget is around three and a half million. Um, with the World Cup next year, the budget will end up being about five point five million. Um, it's been it's been quite quite a journey and and uh, exercise and in, in learning to get, go from there to here. Garrett, do you have any follow up questions or any, anything so far? Yeah, I'd be really curious to hear sort of what what it, what happened between you know the the very first city of Lakes Lopet. Um, I can remember there being these volunteer meetings where people would you know get together at the uh, at the Worth Park Chalet, and um, you know I, I feel like the volunteer infrastructure and, and base in Minneapolis and around the Lopet Foundation is really important. But I'm I'm really curious, like what was that spark that kind of took the Lopet Foundation from from being uh, just, you know, a race that happened once a year, maybe, um, with 800 people that first year, um, and how it kind of took off from there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the story is kind of interesting, um, even going back a, a little further. So I'm now an attorney living in the area, skiing and on the trails and running here, and basically just an exercise and frustration every day. Right, you'd come and ski, and you'd just think what it could be, and how frustrated you were that it wasn't uh, what it could be. Well, all that didn't matter. But in 2001, uh, we had our city elections, and a, a guy named R.T. Ryback uh, ran for mayor. Um, and I'm not even sure I voted for him, but uh, he became mayor. <laughs> went on to. Uh, it turned out that he was a, a very recreational skier, uh, but he he had signed up for and did the Brookabiner that day or that year up in Hayward right after he became mayor. And the story goes that after he uh, did the race, they're on their way back to the cities and they're talking in the car and you know they said, "Hey, geez, Minneapolis, you know, should be what he was calling a silent sports leader in the in the world." And and uh, with skiing and mountain biking, I think being kind of leading on the list there. So he called a meeting of the silent sport community 
um, that ended up happening in the the, the Gulf Soy that that uh, Garrett referenced here in the park. Um, the ironically, the the first silent sports meeting was canceled because it snowed like 18 inches that day, uh, <laughs> mid March. <laughs> but it ended up happening a few weeks later. Uh, I went to the meeting uh, with my pent up frustrations, and there was a bunch of ideas bandied about um, about you know what should happen. There should be you know, good trails, there should be an event, we should do youth programming, um, you know, or there should be mountain bike trails, various ideas. Um, well, nothing much came of that meeting, um, but I did get the email list from the park board folks that had organized it, um, the kind of sign-up list of people who had come and, and took my frustrations and started having meetings. Um, uh, well, those meetings were largely me and... Um, my friend Piat Bednarski, who's now our chief of sport here, um, but had been my ski coach in college. Um, and we would start meeting with the park board and we eventually got some, you know, the trails improved and then, you know, turned to the event. Um, after a few years of running the event um, and finding myself as the race director for this uh, city of Lake Lofit, um, I was able to have a conversation with my wife and say, geez, uh, maybe I should choose one career or another, and I'm fortunate enough my wife is a physician, so she makes a decent income, and I jumped off the bridge and started doing this full-time, and, and I think that doing it full-time is kind of what made all the difference between, you know, just running a race once a year, um, having a bunch of volunteers show up, and doing something, you know, much more robust, um, you know, and I'd say over the years, one of the things that I quickly kind of took on as, as a goal was to build enough scale that you could do this sustainably through the years. So build enough scale so you could have a bookkeeper, build enough scale so that you could, uh, you know, have um, a database person and, um, you know, staff to actually accomplish things um, outside of just the events. So that was kind of how we got here. You're, you're a nonprofit. You know, when I think of clubs normally that are, you know, nonprofits, they're not necessarily one creating massive infra infrastructure like you guys are doing, like on a landscape scale. And also, you know, they're serving a community that it's a, it's an expensive sport to participate in. So oftentimes, um, you know, wealthier families gravitate towards that or families that are struggling to meet, you know, the cost of the sport may ultimately, you know, opt out. So that said, you know, in a big city like you're operating in, um, are you able to tap into multiple sources of funding, like city funding, to enhance your offerings, uh, not just like, hey, we're going to have, you know, more coaches so that we can have a, a larger junior ski club, but, you know, bulldozers on the ground actually, you know, altering the landscape and building trails. Like, how do you guys fund that? <laughs> That's a super complicated question, actually. Um, <laughs> no, I mean it's a it's a good question to explore. It's just it's just not at all a simple answer. So it, it 
it turns out that in Minneapolis, there is a separate park and recreation board, um, separate from the city government. So I mentioned R.T. Ryback, the mayor. Well, he doesn't really have control over the parks directly. Um, and, you know, the, that question has really changed in answer over the years. So in the early years, I think there was some enthusiasm in the park board, and it was a much different park board at the time but some enthusiasm over this kind of idea of a, a big, you know, regional or national event, so the uh, city of Lake Slope Festival, right? And so we could get some of their staff to actually do some trail work um, or, um, you know, help, help in kind of clearing the path politically, right? Um, as that progressed on, those um and we wanted to do more the the discussions became more complex so for example um wasn't more than a year or two after i started that people were suggesting hey we should try and get snowmaking in the park um we, our rt was able to put some money into the city budget that would go to the park board to help um maybe a couple hundred thousand i think um you said RT. Yeah, RT right? Ryback or Mayor Ryback. That, yeah. Oh, gotcha. I was thinking it was like regional transportation, but okay. Oh, sorry. yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. I think Robert Thomas, I think, is what it's really saying. But. It's okay. My <laughs> bad. I just was thinking like. Yeah, no, no worries. Um, and then we paired that by doing some fundraising. And, um, you know, at that time, especially, I, I you know, I was an attorney by trade. I, teacher for a while but no training at all in fundraising and um fortunately we have a great community so i think we raised yeah something like two hundred thousand dollars to buy some snow guns and you know really again had no real idea what we were doing um it turns out that you know running snow guns or buying snow guns is nice but you need a water source that's high pressure and, and high volume. And you need, uh, a, um, you know, 483 phase electric power and you need to have stations scattered in order to make snow and you need to have a piston bully to push it around. Right. And, um, so we were able to do some, but, um, and the, some of the park folks were kind of excited about it. I think we had a 500 meter loop that first year. Um, but I, I quickly ended up getting into disputes with the park board folks because they're like, oh, great, there's snowmaking. We're going to make a tubing hill and use the snow guns to do that. Oh, and snowboarding as well. And, you know, we'll make snow for skiing after we're done with those things in February or something. And so it was a, a very interesting relationship over the years on things like that. That's the type of thing that happened over and over again um, until... 2011 when the park board initiated a, a, a new master plan for the park um and the park here is about as big as central park in new york city so doing a master plan for the park was a pretty big endeavor um, but but i but i we kind of inserted ourselves into that process right we were said hey this is our opportunity to get this park the way we think it really should be so we developed a document called a, a vision for worth um, was suggested closing down the part three golf course and uh, repurposing that land for 
um, you know, more outdoor active type of things, and then putting a building that would act as the jumping off point for all these activities. Um, that turned out to be a very, very controversial document. Um, the golf community, when they figured out what we were trying to do, was super upset, and uh, we had the next, I think, three-year process with that master plan was a pitched battle. <laughs> um we didn't end up closing the part three golf course, but we did end up moving a few of the golf courses or golf holes on the main course. And, and, you know, people weren't happy with it um, at the time, but now uh, that it's done, their golf course has actually improved and there's this beautiful building and uh, mountain biking and skiing happens kind of side by side with the golf and, and everyone's happy. But um, that, that was a lot of politics and, $12 million later. Garrett, so I have a question. Uh, you were, you know, on the U.S. ski team for a while, doing the international thing. Uh, you're based in Innsbruck. Um, sort of a two, two aspects of this question. One is, you know, as an athlete in a different age, uh, what was the discussion like about, oh my gosh, it would be so great to have a World Cup in the U.S.? Uh, and what were the prospects of that, I mean, thinking about the last time a World Cup was held in the U.S. was uh, t- uh, 2001 in Salt Lake pre-Olympics. And uh, my follow-up question, and we can get to this after, is, you know, what is your experience now leading trips to different World Cups and different venues? Uh, what have you learned about how those communities go about funding a World Cup? So those are two separate. Let's. Why don't we start with the first question? Yeah, that, that sounds good. That and even the first question sounds like a big question. But um, yeah, that's a that's a really good question. When when I was um, racing, I was I essentially um, was racing on the Super Tour uh, and World Cup between 2006 and 2011. So about a five year window there and. Thinking back to 2007, I skied my first World Cup in uh, Canmore, Canada, actually. And this was a time when um, you actually, you know, to to get into the points a little bit, you needed a sub 60 point fist race to be able to start a European World Cup at that point. And on the men's side, anyway, I know it was basically impossible to score a sub 60 point fist race on any. U.S. or on any on any U.S. races, Super Tour or college races or whatever. So essentially, the only way um, a U.S. athlete could be able to race the World Cup um, would be to have a sub sixty point this race. And the only way to do that is to be to get to get to that spot is to be in the nations group. And uh, because the U.S. and Canada um, are sort of together in the nation's groups. That's how the U S athletes, um, were essentially able to get world cup starts and, and then had to, in those world cup starts, score good enough points to be able to make the jump to the, to the European, um, world cup circuit. So I think at the time it was really important for us as athletes to have a North American world cup at least. And, uh, I can't tell you how many van rides we would, we would be in. We'd talk about, you know, where, where are we going to host the first, uh, um, you know, us based world cup for our generation. And, 
you know, I, there's so many different venues I've, I've talked to and been to in the U S over the years that have said, Oh yeah, we're homologating our trails because we want to make a world cup trail system, um, that can host. Yeah. A world cup. So I, I'm we'll kind of want to toss that question back to John eventually, like how, how it is that, uh, that worth became that park or that ski area that, uh, that was able to make it happen. How did worth become that place that, you know, it's on the radar and they're able to present a successful bid to FIS to host a world cup? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's the confluence of a, a few different things happening, right? We have trails here that while not on the super difficult side for a world cup are challenging enough that we can get them homologated and get on the radar. Um, we're in a city of 3.5 million people in the metropolitan area. Um, and we have an organization that actually has, uh, the infrastructure in place, um, to, to, to run something this big, uh, and a volunteer base. And by the way, um, a, a bunch of multinational corporations in Minnesota that can help sponsor something. I think what one of the things people might not realize is in most non-U.S. Uh, countries, uh, if not all of them, uh, the, the World Cups are, as I understand it, almost entirely funded by, um, you know, by the government. Um, you know, hey, you know, we're uh, Lillehammer, we want to host a, a World Cup, we go to the mayor and, and he says, how much money do you need me to write the check, right? Well, that's a much different equation in the, in the United States um, where the money to run a World Cup needs to come from um, sponsors or private resources of some kind, uh, almost entirely. So when, you know, I guess along the way, um, our goal was to make, you know, good, good trails and, you know, get snowmaking for kind of local community to ski on. Um, and so when Jesse, um, came to us and I think this was in 2017, um, she, she had skied in Quebec city, um, and probably in Canmore as well, uh, and been pretty jealous of her Canadian counterparts who had, um, their local fans cheering for them as they skied the course. And so she said, geez, I would love to have a, a World Cup on U.S. soil before I retire. Uh, I've heard that you guys at the Lopet, you know, are doing a lot of good stuff. Uh, I, I wonder whether you could work on trying to get a World Cup uh, uh, at worst. And that was a pretty neat phone call to get uh, when you when 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 you pick up the phone and and someone says, "Oh, hi, John. This is Jesse Diggins. You, you tend to pay attention." Um, so we called U.S. Ski and Snowboard and started talking to them about the possibility of running a World Cup, um, which was a pretty cha you know challenging call um, at first because, like Garrett said, a lot of folks have wanted to run World Cups over time, and I think they've had a lot of conversations over time with U.S. Ski and Snowboard and. I think U.S. Ski and Snowboard was a little bit gun-shy at the time. They were like, geez, we've had a bunch of false starts. Um, you know, we've gone to FIS and talked about running a World Cup only to have things kind of crumble and don't really want to have that experience again. 
Um, and it turns out that it's pretty expensive to run a World Cup. And really, U.S. Ski and Snowboard didn't at the time even really know how much it would be. Um, they had been thinking about running World Cups in uh, either Central Park in New York City or maybe in Boston someplace. Um, places where there weren't snowmaking and they, you know, they just had some big budget numbers. They didn't know what it would actually cost to pull something off. Um, but after talking to Yoski and Snowbird for a while, they realized that we had snowmaking here and it wouldn't cost that much to do the snowmaking element of, above and beyond what, you know, we were already doing, that we were building this building and that we had a, a club that had, you know, significant infrastructure, um, um, and capacity that could actually, you know, pull something like this off. Um, but even with all that said, we were still like, geez, we don't know how we could put the pieces together sponsorship wise. Um, but then Jesse and Keegan won the gold medal at, at the Olympics. And uh, basically the next day we all called each other and we're like, okay, now is the time. And, um, and even then there was a couple months when we were, thinking hard about this um and uh you know before we kind of jumped off the cliff um but i'll i'll just kind of go back to jesse i mean jumping off the cliff really took jesse agreeing to come and uh speak to a you know couple um groups of kind of the, the business leaders in the minneapolis area talk about her vision and try and get people on board and and it turns out that Jesse is as good at um, public speaking and charisma as, as she is fast at skiing, and so <laughs> so people were pretty excited to to be part of that. Um, so that that's kind of how we how we got here. Um, does that makes sense. Yep. Yeah, I was. I'm kind of curious, like you know what what is the bid process like with with this to to get it the uh, World Cup in Minneapolis. And, and as I understand, that wasn't entirely, entirely easy. It wasn't, it wasn't just saying, it wasn't just having Jesse say, I'd like to host a world cup in Minneapolis and then getting a couple of business leaders on board and saying, we'll support it. Um, I imagine I'd be curious to understand a little bit more behind the scenes, what, what went on to actually make it happen. Yeah. So, so this is, um, April of 2018, right? So just 18 months ago or so. Um, and <laughs> it turns out that they, the bid process for these World Cups actually starts three, four, five years before uh, the World Cup actually happens um, so they can get the calendaring set and, and you know, f figure out how all the things will, all the events will flow for a, for a calendar year. Um so we're really behind on that. Um, we decided to give it a shot and, and on the theory that, you know, Jesse's a big international star and this is, in, in our mind, should be excited to try and have a World Cup on U.S. soil because here's an opportunity to create a much bigger fan base for, for the World Cup. So we bought a plane ticket. Um, uh, we being me and then the U.S. and snowboard guys um, and went to, uh, where was it at that time? Um, Greece uh, for for the, the fifth meetings that spring. And, you know, I'm, I'm I remember a, a former attorney, right? So 
I'm going to argue my way to this. Um, so we get over to the meetings and there's already a, a stop in Quebec City scheduled for 2020 and then another stop in Calgary. And there's supposed to be two events in Quebec City and three events in, in uh, Canmore and really no open space on the calendar. Um, but uh, the, the, the hope was that Canmore would say, geez, you know, that's fine. Why don't you just do it in America instead? Well, th that didn't exactly happen. Um, so we ended up having a meeting with the Canadians and you know, the USDN snowboard folks and the FIS folks uh, to talk through whether we could get on the calendar. And, you know, if you look now, there are two events in Quebec City and there are three in Canmore. <laughs> and what we were able to do was kind of shoehorn in an extra sprint in the middle of the week uh, as the solution. But that was, that was only after a very, um, um, what I'm sure the FIS folks would, would look upon as a kind of ugly American discussion. Cause I was like, geez, how could you not want to have a world cup in the, in the U S and it should be on a weekend and we could make this, you know, this great thing for, for the sport. And, um, in the end, Vagard told me I was being very unreasonable. Um, and, and when Vagard tells you you're being unreasonable, you, you shut up at that point. And, um, but, but, but the result was, you know, getting that Tuesday event. So let me, and I, maybe we should have rung Vagard up here, but like, what would have been unreasonable? The insistence that, you know, I mean, we have a proven U S team routinely on the podium and like, it's a worthy country to host a world cup. We have a community ready. You think it's ready. And, you know, is it, is it pushing the limit of like, Hey, culturally we're ready financially we're ready and demanding that it'd be a weekend spot. I mean, like what, it, what about it from your perception may have been perceived as unreasonable? Well, uh, well I, I think the, the, you know, they were right in retrospect. I mean, I didn't understand the process. Uh, I'm, it, it's, this is a very um, old institution and has ways of going about things that, that are a, a little, esoteric um so the way the way this really runs is it's a very much uh confederation of all the different um national governing bodies and they really run not not like the nfl does where there's a commissioner who says and we will have 16 games and they will play in these arenas and you know and there will be this salary cap and whatever right um they're much more of a consensus organization. So uh, the this leadership does the best they can to kind of, you know, get everyone going in the same direction. But, you know, the various countries have to all be satisfied. And Canada wanted to have two World Cups, and they had already had them on the calendar. And, um, you know, this can't just make decisions. Um, by fiat, right? So um, that was something I didn't really understand. So a couple of things like how much, you know, you mentioned, uh, well, how much is it costing to host a World Cup? And you use the metaphor a little bit about either jumping off the cliff or running off the cliff, um, which is a little bit like, uh, yeah, you know, there's gravity, right? 
And there's a bottom down there somewhere on the other side of the cliff. So hopefully this isn't a literal like jumping off the cliff. Uh, you know, so I'm curious, how much is it? And, you know, financially, how do you come through this without the World Cup actually being held yet? But how do you come through this solvent? Yeah, <laughs> great question. Um, so, you know, the reason I kind of use the metaphor jumping off the cliff is it's, it's a, it's a, as it's turned out, that's about a two and a half million dollar endeavor to host. Um, and, and you could probably do it less expensive if you weren't trying to get uh, a lot of spectators to the event and, and really, you know, run a, a festival and do it all right. But, um, but it's not going to be a million. It's, you know, maybe it's 2 million if you, if you kind of get it down to bare bones. Right. So it's an expensive endeavor for a, you know, a ski club like ours. Um, and we didn't have, you know, all the money secured. In fact, I think we might've had promises of, I don't know, 200 grand or something when we decided to do it. Um, we kind of went with business leaders saying they were excited and that they would help, um, or they would be likely to help, uh, and said, you know what, this is worth taking the risk. Um, so that's what I mean about jumping off the cliff. You don't really know if, if you, the parachute's going to de- deploy or if, if, uh, you know, folks are going to, are going to catch you at the bottom. Right. Um, but, um, but I think it's, it's, it's been worth the risk and, you know, we're still trying to make it work. And, you, you know, you asked, you know, how you make it work, I guess. And, you know, the sponsors are a big piece of that. Um, for us, increasingly, you know, not all those sponsors have panned out completely. So a little bit more of our budget has has uh, gotten transferred to um, banking on spectators showing up. So we've sold, I don't know, 3,500 tickets or so now. But if we don't sell you know, 13, 14, 15,000, we will likely not break even on this. So, um, it's an entrepreneurial venture at this point. I would, I would actually be curious where, where some of that money goes as an athlete who's competed on the world cup. You know, I know that the red group gets their, um, you know, expenses paid for, um, I'd, I'd be curious of that two and a half million, um, how that, how that kind of breaks down. Yeah, um, I don't have the full budget in front of me, but I think I can give you kind of broad brush uh, ideas. So, um, you know, there's probably four or five hundred thousand in uh, you know kind of hotel accommodations and transportation. Um, some some of those elements. Um, there's oh boy. Um, this is one I'm going to, I'm going to trip over a little bit. Um, cause I just don't have the, the stuff in front of me. Um, I'm kind of, uh, sorry to kind of be, have an interlude here, but John, I don't know if you can grab the budget for the world cup someplace. Um, sorry, John, but, I didn't, but mean, anyway, I didn't so, mean to stump you. I didn't mean to stump you on that one. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, that one just takes a, a little bit of, of thinking through. Oh, Here's, a, here's another, I mean, these ones, we don't put on World Cups every day, so they don't jump into my head quite as easily. But, you know, it's like 250 grand for the TV production, right? It's, um, 
yeah, great. Um, you, you've got a, a lot in the transportation. You got a lot in the uh, in, in the hotel accommodations. You've got kind of food and beverages, and having to erect the wax village and the and the athlete uh, village and tent. Um, you've you've we're, we have a, a VIP area, and that's going to be a, a costly chunk of things. And and then you've got you know security. Um, you've got, you know, volunteer costs. I'm just kind of starting to look over some of the revenue side. So you mentioned something about you've sold about 3,500 tickets and covering costs is, it sounds like it's dependent on selling. I'm just throwing this out there, you know, 10 to 13,000 more tickets. Mm Mm-hmm. And I'm assuming that's the model because say like I'd have to go back and really do my research, but like the last time, at least I was in Camor, maybe I think it's 2017, it was free, but they get a ton of government money to put on a, an event like that. So is that the theory behind it? Or the business model is that, you know, there's sponsor money trickling in and hopefully more, or maybe you have that covered, but to cover cost, you essentially need to charge people to attend. Yeah, I, I think, I think that's pretty much right. I mean, I, or, or you get enough sponsors, you know, to make it work. Um, I'm a big, I'm kind of, I'm pretty bullish about the, the charging admission. Um, I, I, I think it's one of the ways that we build up our sport um, by saying, Hey, our sport actually has value. Um, it's a super fun thing to watch. It's, it's not just some kind of cheap thing that you see on the, on the side for free, you know, paying 25 bucks, which is our general admission price to go to the the event, I think actually gets people committed to go. Um, so if the weather is, is likely to happen in the ski world, it turns out that it's very cold or it's raining or it's, you know, in some other way, not ideal weather that people are still like, Hey, I paid my 25 bucks. I'm going to be there. So now all of a sudden, instead of having, you know, 500, a thousand people watching, which frankly is what you see at a lot of the world cup races that I watch on television, at least that's what, what it looks like. Um, you know, we, we have people really excited to be there because we've put a value on it. Um, so that, uh, but but it also, as it turns out, is going to be an important piece of how we do make this thing work. I'm just curious, what was the toughest fist requirement to meet? You know, I know there's lots of when you look at their documents about hosting, there's lots of requirements. What was the toughest one to actually follow through on and, and meet the requirement? And can you also talk a little bit about having to pay, you know, to to broadcast it? what that entails and what that actually is. Cause that's a big, you know, when you look at the FIS model, uh, it's a little bit different than the IBU or international biathlon union that from my understanding has a production crew that goes from site to site and actually they put it on themselves. Yeah. So the toughest fifth, fifth requirement, um, you know, I guess the, the course is of course uh, an important piece. Um, but Hey, they want to have a, a, a course that's tough and fair and you know if you're getting homologated you're kind of working on those things um i think some of the harder things and i wouldn't say there is any real one tough thing it's just a whole bunch of things that there's some minutia in and you got to follow through on all of them so you know hotels i mean you you gotta 
make that work and make it work to the satisfaction of um, the the athletes and the coaches, right? The the wax cabins and so forth. Um, there's just a lot of a lot of pieces to put together that are a little bit more nitpicky than they would be putting on a citizen race, right? So, uh, and bigger in scale. So, yeah, it's, it's, there's no kind of sexy answer on that one, I wouldn't say. Um, I mean, on the, yeah. um, what was the second piece of your question there was? TV broadcast requirements. You mentioned something like $250,000 of the budget was allocated towards broadcasting. Um, yeah, can you speak a little bit of, to that and what your obligations are. Yeah. I mean, we, well, we basically have to write the check. Um, <laughs> I mean, we have to have, have space, you know, for the, for the broadcast, uh, crew and for their semi trailers and so forth. Um, uh, but the crew is one that us team snowboard, uh, works with, um, for all their world cup events. Um, so, we think of them not doing World Cup events, but I think they run 15 to 20 a year. Just most of them are in alpine and snowboarding and so forth, right? Um, so that crew is is one that US Ski and Snowboard has worked with a bunch. Um, and we we have to make the place available starting on the, I think, Friday before the Tuesday event, right? So that they can be running all their cables and wires all over the course and, and you know, getting all the the you know their infrastructure set up um it's you know it's mostly the check um is the is the the challenge there i would say it's not like we're actually doing the 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 work on it yeah i was gonna ask how 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 um preparing for the world cup compares to some of the other events that you've hosted in the past i think you've hosted junior world or uh uh, junior nationals and uh, world, the Masters World Cup at some point, and then obviously the City of Lakes Lopa is a huge undertaking as well. How, what, where does where does the World Cup fall in line with with some of those other events? Well, it's interesting. I mean, the Junior Nationals and the Masters World Cup they sound like big things, and I think they were some of the stepping stone resume pieces for us um, that that were helpful. But those events are frankly fairly easy to well masters world cup i would say is uh not that hard of a, a event to put on for us anyway um it's a ski race and it's mostly what's happening on the snow um there are some you know banquet type things happening at the hotel um and the hotel is always kind of a uh, endeavor to get those pieces put together but you know a big event not not that in the end hard to do um junior nationals same thing the hard parts of that were getting all the teams to stay in our you know athlete village downtown and run the shuttle service um it was it was hard to get the venue up to speed at that time because we were you know not a real developed venue at the time but actually putting on the ski race is you know you groom the trail and most of us you know that that's an area where kind of familiar with um the world cup um it, well before i get to the world cup so that you asked about the local festival that's actually much more challenging and takes much more effort for us um when you have you know our, our local festival we typically have ten thousand people do this luminary local event that we do 
Well, that's a big undertaking um, from volunteers working all month to put these ice sculpture things together um, to making sure that there are enough carafes of cocoa on the ice that we can serve 10,000 people and not r run out when the four-year-old uh, that mom brought out on the ice starts crying. Um, those turn out to be the, the difficult details. Um, and then the, then the World Cup is kind of just a whole other whole scale, right? And when you have the whole world coming uh, and you, you do have to hit the hotel, right? When you have to figure out how to get those, you know, 15,000 people to your venue and you have basically zero parking, um, you know, figuring out things like the, the shuttle bus uh, system, those are challenges. And then figuring out all the, the details that you really have to get exactly right because this isn't the ski race that if it starts at 9.07 instead of 9, it works out just fine. Um, this is, you know, going to be broadcast live in Norway and you're doing a whole production and, you know, the award ceremony is not just approximately seven. It's no, it's at 7.01 and 14 seconds. These are much different questions to, to grapple with. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so that's, you know, that's, and we'll see, we haven't you know done the world cup yet. So we've just talked about it a lot at this point. Okay. So for me, my last question is, where do you see this going from here? You know, it's, it's, it's one day, you're, you know, folks will be, and I think it's uh, wrapped into kind of a sprint mini tour with a couple of sprints in Quebec City. And then folks hop a plane and head over to Minneapolis for the conclusion of that with a sprint. And then from there, uh, skiers head up to Canmore for a more distance oriented series of races. You know, where do you see something like this or do you see Minneapolis playing a role in the future uh, in terms of holding multi-day or one, a World Cup and perhaps a multi-day World Cup? Yeah, um, we're, we're, I would say, as a whole, pretty fired up to keep doing this. Um, you know, we'll see how things turn out. Uh, you know, we, we, it's got to be financially viable, obviously. Um, but if we can make it financially viable, we're excited to put a bit in, um, and, and hopefully you well, we, we've talked to you and snowboard at length about this. Um, but for tw 2022, the hope would we, be, we'd do the a three day world cup finals. Um, and then there's been discussion of, of doing kind of even a, a North American tour of some kind in 2024 because that's a year that doesn't have Olympics or a world championship. And so there's more flexibility in the fifth schedule. Um, but the, but the 2022 is I think kind of next step. Um, we'll, we'll see, I think probably March 18th, the day after the world cup, we'll be, uh, on the, on the phone, seeing if we can uh, start getting on the calendar for 2022. Um, yeah, there's, I, I think the Russians, um, I have, Put a bit in for that World Cup final, but given the status of Russia, I'm not sure how much appetite there is for that um, in general. Yeah. Right, and that technically, I mean, I know they're appealing it, but would fall in the four year twenty. Well, I guess it would probably push right up to that four year uh, limit of hosting events. So I guess we'll have to see how that plays out. It's a whole nother story. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> um, 
2024, I know, you know, I've talked to Ben Pop up at the Berkey, um, you know, that will be their 50th anniversary. And I think they're pretty excited to be part of some kind of North American swing that year. So we've had some discussions about what, you know, something might look like that would happen over a, a series of days. And, and of course, Canada's, you know, in those, you know, all these discussions as well. Um, but I think they're kind of taking a little bit of a breather from World Cup stuff um, after this year. So we'll see. Garrett, any closing questions, comments? Yeah, I'd be kind of curious. So I feel like the the event sort of we haven't talked about the event itself, and it in in looking at some of sort of the side events, even you have a lot of social advocacy, you might say. So you have you know the sustainability side. I know, I know FIS has sustainability guidelines, and it sounds like with the bus transportation to the venue and whatever, you're kind of incorporating that, and then you have you know, the fast and female, um, events and Keegan talking and some big things there. And then there's also like the equity and adventure round table. Um, I'd be curious from your perspective, um, what you hope people take away from this event? Well, I mean, I'd say first and foremost, I hope when they leave this event, they, they say, wow, that was an amazing experience. And I want to, you know, Come, come back. I want to find out more about World Cup racing and start following it more. And and um, and that there are kids that leave the event and decide they 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 want to become the next, you know, Garrett Cousy or Jesse Diggins. Um, but 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 more than that, I, I think you know for the ski community to see that we can put on something that is r- really exciting and competitive with um, you know what else is out there in in um, popular sports and entertainment, uh, I think would be great. Um, I think, uh, for, for, for people to see that we can appeal more broadly than just hardcore skiers, I think will be exciting. Um, you know, that's why we're doing things like, um, you know, music concerts and stuff through the weekend. Um, we're also doing, um, an event we call uh, Snowball in Hell, which if you if you know kind of the Red Bull crashed ice events on ice skates, they've done some of those in, in Europe as well on skis, but this will be kind of crashed ice on cross-country skis. Um, we think that's going to be a really exciting piece to watch. Um, and then you're right, Garrett, we're going to be doing some, some stuff that, that you know shows off some of the work that we've been trying to do on equity, on getting underserved populations and, and populations that don't traditionally, you don't traditionally think of on cross-country skis, um, you know, get, getting, getting them out and, and um, letting them kind of show off that, that uh, you know, the young African-American kid from North Minneapolis is, is a good skier and really excited about it, right? Um, so, um, oh, I think all those pieces together should make for a, a weekend that kind of leaves people excited and and uh, have a little bit of, of uh, thought-provoking in terms of what, what we can do across the country. I mean, it's a big deal for the cross-country community in the U.S., but it's it's really good to get like a, a very ground, you, say, you seem very grounded and realistic in terms of how much work uh, something like this entails. So um, hopefully it, it means more to come. Hopefully, you know, those ideas about 2022, 2024, which seem like forever from now, but they're really not manifest. 
it's fascinating for me from afar to see everything that's happened in Minneapolis and the Lopez Foundation over the past uh, 20 years. So I'm, I'm really excited for this event. Yeah, no, I really appreciate uh, you guys, uh, you know, talking to me here. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I just want to, one last thing to say is, uh, you know, I haven't really acknowledged the incredible volunteers that we have that have been, you know, pushing this thing forward. I mean, I'm, I'm really, you know, a mouthpiece at this point. They're the ones doing the, the hard work. And then, you know, we've had some great um, support that's rallied from across the country. And, uh, you know, uh, mention in particular, you know, the Fastenal Corporation that stepped up as our, our title sponsor on this. And then Share Winter Foundation has, has been, you know, a great supporter of, of really all the work that we're doing to kind of, you know, you know, spread skiing culture. Um, so it's, it, it takes a, a village across our whole country. Well, thanks, thanks for thanks for providing the uh, the the inspiration and the and the template. Thanks for listening.